Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and changemakers. How does racism hide in our daily lives? How does history impact us today? What are jobs going to look like in an AI future? What is the society we want to live in? These are a few of the massive questions Dr. Rob Eshman explores in today's conversation. Rob is a scholar, educator, filmmaker, and author of When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. He is endlessly curious about ways to end oppression and better understand the mechanism of racism. Throughout this conversation, he shares his hope for the future, what drove him to research structural racism, education as a path for social change, what jobs AI might render obsolete, and how he uses art, film, and storytelling in the struggle against racism. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 710. I think I am endlessly curious about ways that we can end oppression. I think that the more I learn about um, racism and oppression of different forms, the you know the the more I can get discouraged when we when we realize how entrenched these these systems of oppression are. But I want to kind of stand on the shoulders of the of, of the activists who have come before us and all the, the brilliant people who are thinking about fighting racism today. And I you know I want to figure out how can we make not just baby steps but big steps to fight against this problem. And so I think that's something that all the different areas of research that I've undertaken, that my work is about better understanding the mechanisms of racism so that we can dismantle them. And so that is something that I am endlessly curious about. What a tall, massive thing to be endlessly curious about. And it just seems like there's no end to for lack of better word, the creativity of the oppressors. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's absolutely true. And I think that you see different forms of oppression throughout history. So, you know, uh, um, it, it, it does seem like it, it may be endless. I think that there is something unique about the creation of race and, and uh, the, you know, the, the way that race and racism has been used um, you know, in the, in the past several hundred years, uh, um, in our modern society. And, and, um, I, you know, I choose to hope that it is something that we can break down. Um, I think that, that, you know, society looks a lot different now than it did a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, and I do believe that, that humans have the capacity to, you know, imagine a different society where we don't allow things like race and, and gender and orientation to uh, dictate the life chances of people in that society. It does seem like it's a problem that has no end. Um, you know, it's, you know, I'm busy, we're busy, we're, 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 you know, as we think about how to combat these things, but that I do have hope that, the, that there is um, a future. And I, you know, I think a lot of the, the work, when I think about what abolitionists have been doing and, and talking about and writing about, um, for decades, like part of the work is, is imaginative. How do we imagine a society that does not need to rely on racial differences and classifications in order to, you know, justify where resources go? I love that you talk a lot about hope 
And I wonder what your hope is rooted in. Ooh, that is a good question. Um, I don't know that I've ever been asked a question like that. What, what is my hope rooted in? I refuse to believe that because things are broken now, that that means that they need to be broken forever. I think that humans have done so much, right? I just came back. I was in Rome and Cairo earlier this summer, and I was just marveling at what, right? Like, wow, look at what, look at what humans accomplished so long ago. And I, you know, I think that like, it's amazing to think that 5,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years, the things were being built like this that are still standing. And I think that, that we have the capacity to build great things. I think that we have the capacity to, to dismantle great evils as well. And that's something that, you know, that, that, that gives me hope. I think I'm also given hope when I look at history and see the types of, um, you know, problems that have been overcome over the past few centuries. And so from, you know, no one, no one could imagine during the times of slavery that one day there would be a black president in the United States. Now, do I think that Obama being elected means that racism is dead? Absolutely not. But right. But what it just shows that right, that we are able to make some advancements. So, so I, I think I'm, I'm also given hope when I look back to the struggle that ordinary people took part in throughout history in order to, you know, to, to make the changes and, and bring us some of the rights that we have today. And I want to be a part of the current struggle to continue to make society better and to con- continue to uproot uh, racism, um, at, you know, as, as it affects all of our lives every day. I also love that you mentioned imagination and the role of imagining a better world. And I think I heard that recently in someone's description of woke, actually. Uh, that woke is actually a way to imagine a better future for everyone. And, and I, I think that there's something powerful in being able to imagine things beyond what we know, what we're comfortable with, what we're (laughs) capable of. Yeah. Yeah. That is a great point. I don't know that I've heard woke described that way. And, you know, it's unfortunate that I think in recent years, I haven't heard woke, you know, uh, it's mostly used by folks on the right, um, and, and, and kind of a way to almost satirize folks who are interested in, in, you know, in pursuing justice. I like that explanation of, of, you know, uh, I think that, that the way that I've thought about being woke is being aware of the broken system. Cause I think that, that, you know, uh, um, and, you know, I, and I guess that, that from the definition you're saying is being aware of the fact that this is not the way that things have to be. Right. Um, and right. And so, and I say that, that, that for me to be, you know, being woke is, you know, it's not a term I use often, but, but it, it, to, to begin to, to be woke, it means being, you know, waking up to what the system is doing, the ways that most people think about race are the ways that they are meant to think about that we can predict how people think about race based on where they're born, who their parents are, what kind of, what education levels that they come from that we can think about, okay, what are the myths of race that, that you were taught? And that is how most people think about race. And, and part of the work, part of activist work is getting people to recognize the lies that they're told, the lies that they're taught and getting them to rethink, okay, why is it that society is organized in this way? And what, you know, do we need to do? What are the, consequences of society being organized this way are we okay with those and if we're not what needs to be done in order to make a change yes one of the things that i appreciate most about your book is that you spend a lot of time defining terms 
so that there's common ground. And, mm-hmm. and I think that is a, first off, that's a powerful way to redirect the conversation away from stereotypes and away from ignorance and to be like, this is what it means when I say this. This is what mm-hmm. it means when people say this. For people listening, how do you define racism? I define racism. And so, you know, the, the reason I spend so much time doing that. So first of all, I think in academic writing, it's pretty normal to define terms, but it's more like, you know, what, what we do is we say, this is, this is how I'm using the term. And just so you know, so you can keep up with me. And that's because people may have different definitions. And part of what I try to do is I don't just do that. And that, that comes from, you know, just hanging out with friends and being in group chats where people don't all have the same definition of a term. And, and to, for me to use it in a way that they're not familiar with is not helpful for the conversation. So in the book, what I, what I do when I talk about racism is I talk about, look, there's a common definition of racism. This is what most people think about when they think about racism. And then here is a kind of a technical definition that comes from the field of people who study these things. So the common definition of racism and the, the way I describe it in the book is this is racism with a capital R. And most people only would call something racist if it is open racism. If this is a white supremacist who says, yes, I think all black people are dumb or bad. Um, that is someone who is racist. That is what racism is. And anything other than that, it is inappropriate to use the word racist. It's almost like a slur to call someone a racist. But if we think about what does racism mean, right? Uh, the, the, the definition of racism. It's an ideology or an idea about race that legitimates or justifies racial inequality. And so you have on one hand, it's the attitude. And then on the other hand, you have its effect, the function of the attitude. If, the, if this is the attitude about race that keeps black folks or folks of color down, that contributes to myths that keep them down, that keep them, you know, from, from having equal access if it's an attitude that, that is embedded in policies that continue racial inequality, then that is a racist attitude. And the important thing to realize is that you don't have to hate folks of color in order to hold a racist attitude. And that, right. So that's a, the, you know, that's a big thing that I, that I, I tried to, you know, hammer home is that when we're thinking about what racism looks like in a society where it is illegal, it does not always look like the racism with the capital R, like the people carrying tiki torches. Most of the time, it is everyday, you know, accepted ways of thinking. And that is where we need to really, you know, um, put on our kind of anti-racist thinking caps to be able to, how do we identify racism when it is hidden behind a mask? How do we identify racism when it is embedded in a policy that does not mention race? How do we identify racism when it's coming from a friend who does not hate you. They love you, but they're doing something that causes harm. And so I think that that is, that is part of the work of identifying racism is figuring out the ways that it hides in, you know, everyday interactions and institutions. What I hear embedded in that too is there's a, a common refrain when someone says dot, 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 but I'm not, but I'm not racist. You know, and so generally that's white people doing that, you know, because there's this, you know, I I never would want to be perceived as that way. But if someone checks me on it, I, I'm going to slam on the brakes because I, I need to know what's going on. Why did I why did I do that? Yeah. And, and I think 
what I'm hearing you say is that in order for, and I'm just coming at it from my experience as a white person, I have to be willing to enter in the conversation and, and be like, I can actually be racist without knowing it. And I have to yeah. pass that. Am, am I correct in that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think that, you know, a good way of thinking about it, one of the videos I have my students watch is from a guy named Jay Smooth. And he says, we need to move away from seeing racism as being a permanent characteristic to being like having something in your teeth. Mm. So if someone tells you they have something in your teeth, you don't take that doesn't hurt your self-esteem and say, oh man, I'm a filthy person. Right. And for the rest of my life, I'm the guy with something in their teeth. I know like, you, you get some floss, you get it out of your teeth and it's gone. And so like for people who engage in, in hurtful acts, it can be any of us. Yeah. And that when we're told you just did something that is problematic or hurtful and here's why, that, that maybe that can make us a little bit less defensive. Let's say, okay, thank you for letting me know. Let me get my toothpick and let me get rid of this thing because that is not who I, I wish to be. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times when we think about the, you know, um, kind of the ways that we support systems of oppression, it, the, the system works because people don't realize that they're doing it all the time, right? When people, like the, the, the hope is that when people realize that what they're doing is causing harm, they won't want to do it anymore. And I think that, right, so that, that, is, that is part of the hope in identifying and naming racism is, is realizing that we live in a society where most people do not understand how racism operates. Most people do not have a full understanding of how deep racism goes. Many people legitimately believe that racism is a problem that died out decades ago and that we're talking about something that doesn't need to be talked about anymore. So the more that we can bring awareness to how racism is still alive and well, the, the you know, hopefully the more people we can recruit to being on the side of anti-racism. Yes. One of the areas of research that you focus on is digital technology and online communication. And it, it's, in a way, a shocking part of the book as you uncover how it not only proliferates, how racism proliferates through online communication, but then also moves into everyday real-life experiences. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be shocked, but I am shocked. It is a shocking thing to live in a world where open racism is not the norm in most mainstream settings, but then to go online and, and see how ugly conversations about race get. And it reminds you, that okay, there are people who think this way in the world. And I think that that, that can be shocking. I think that a lot of us have, have gotten used to racism online and we just kind of roll our eyes and think, oh, that's just the way that things are. Um, but 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 uh, what we need to do is, one, think through what does it mean to see this more, you know, open racism online? What does that tell us about racism in the real world? If, if it's so different than our everyday experiences, what is it, is it, is it you know, limited to a small subset of people or does this mean that these are attitudes that are hidden? by, you know, folks that, that may be in our circles every day. And then two, how can we use this as evidence for people who are, you know, who aren't hiding, you know, uh, um, inner hate, but who are legitimately believing that racism is not a serious problem in society? Can we use these examples of online more open hate to convince them that we are, we as a society 
are not past this problem? Can we use that as a teaching tool that can open people's eyes to see not only that there is, you know, more racism online, but also, okay, now let's, let's, let's use this lens to understand what racism looks like in the world when it's less open. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that, that examining racism online has a, has a lot to teach us in terms of understanding how racism works uh, in the everyday face-to-face world. What was it about the early days of the internet that helped create a utopian view that race would cease to exist, that we could be quote-unquote colorblind, that race wouldn't be an issue? Yeah, I think the the assumption was that racism came racial differences and so if you're online and you're you have text-based communication that you, the race doesn't matter only the only thing that matters is the conversation content and the forum um and there is this kind of uh, uh somewhat silly now looking back belief that racism would die out with the help of digital technologies that allowed people to communicate literally without seeing the color of skin of the people that they were talking to um, you know, I think that, that very quickly we learned that that was not the case. Um, there's research that even in forums that are text-based, when someone mentions that they are black, they get treated differently um, after telling other users that they're black. In video games, there's evidence of even people who choose a black avatar are treated differently, whether you know, regardless of what their race is. And then, of course, there's a whole host of, of research and. And, you know, like one of the things I talk about is kind of my personal experience of gaming in the book, uh, you know, when, when, when people can hear voices, but not see faces and you have all kind of N words being thrown around and how common, um, experiences like that are. So absolutely. Um, the, the people who thought that the race would be a race were wrong, but they did that, that came from, you know, uh, um, imagining that humans without the visual cues to let people know about racial differences might be. Um, you know, um, that th- th- they would not have the option of, you know, maintaining racist ideas. Yeah. The stories that you tell about learning why you don't wear headsets when gaming online was heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's something where like I opened the book by talking about how the first time I was called the N word maliciously was online gaming and I couldn't believe it. And it's something that really sparked a, a question for me of trying to you know, of wondering, like, what does it, like, what does this tell me about racism in the real world? Should I look differently at my white friends who play this game when such a high percentage of people online are using language like this? I'm wondering, is this the language they use when I'm not around? And, you know, I don't, I don't know that I, um, I, I didn't take this and become bitter, but it's a, it's a, you know, and, and it's also not the question that drove me to grad school or to become a researcher. But it's something I had in the back of my head that when people, you know, when I'm taking a class and I'm learning about how racism has become more subtle, and I'm also thinking, well, kind of like it's more subtle in these friendly settings, but then yeah, I can take you to some places online where it's not more subtle. And so maybe we're kind of making, you know, we're making statements about how the world has changed, but it's only changed in places where there's a social pressure to, uh, you know, speak about race in kind and gentle ways. And online, there's a, you know, this somewhat of a disconnect from the perceived social need to be polite about issues of race. And so when you see people in a context where um, they don't feel like their behavior has to be, you know, um, guided by these societal expectations, then you begin to see people act in ways that, that we may see as being a little bit more honest. And those things are telling about 
um, you know, where we really are when it comes to race relations. Yeah. I'm always intrigued when you hear those stories of inciting incidents, those moments in our lives, like in beyond the spider verse where they call it a canon event. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and just when I hear you talk about the experience of being called, you know, those words and, and the hate that you, that you receive when, when you go down this road of becoming a researcher, like, was that an inciting incident or did you have other moments that were pointing the direction of your life towards this area of research, this desire to dismantle racism? That yeah, That is a great question. I don't know that I see that as being a canon event. I think that for me, that my, the thing that drove me to want to be a researcher, well, you know, I want to be an education scholar and think about education reform was learning. It's more the structural racism. It's looking at poor, right? Like I think, uh, uh, you know, I'm a Chicago public schools graduate, but I went to a magnet school where you had to get tested to get in. And we were much better funded than a lot of other Chicago public schools. And what, you know, one thing that, that's crazy is when I was in high school, I never played in a way game at a school that had toilet paper in the locker room. Four years, I was on varsity for four years. So the, right, this is dozens of games and we brought toilet paper with us wow. for every away game. Cause not once were we in a, in a locker room that was stocked with toilet paper. Wow. That's a weird thing, isn't it? Yeah. That is a weird thing. And so right, like, I think that I saw the research. Yeah. I wasn't a suburban kid where we think about the research resource differ, differential between urban and suburban programs. I wasn't a suburban kid, but I was in a public school, a, a urban school that had suburban level funding. So like for me, I like, it was just, you know, the writing on the wall was clear that there, that this is not an equal chance at success at getting into college when you're in a school that's underfunded. If you run if the school doesn't have toilet paper, what else don't they have? And right. And, and, and so I think that for me, think like seeing inequality, um, and, and, and my, you know, in the world is what drove me towards thinking about education, education reform. And, and I kind of chose that is a potential path for social change so that we can, you know, make education better then then maybe this is a way for us to kind of stop the cycle of, of reproducing racial inequality. Um, so that, like, I think that's what drove me to grad school. I think that the, you know, the, the, the online stuff, it's kind of, this was, as I learned about race, this is something that I had in the back of my head that of the ways that I understood the world to work. And so I think that my kind of career going in this way of studying online things came from seeing a disconnect between the theories I was reading about racism and then my own personal experiences online. Um, and, it, you know, just kind of being like a, an interest that I had, I would start to, I started reading um, a lot about online communication and race. Um, and then I really, you know, began to study it when there was a, a website, which I, I talk about this in chapter four. Um, a case study of a website on a college campus where there was an, an anonymous website that was meant just to start discussions, but really it turned into this super racist site. And the thing that intrigued me about it was that this is like, you had to be a student at this university in order to post on the site. It was a little bit different than the online racism that, that we have gotten used to, where here the messages are coming from people who are on campus. Oh, so I wanted to talk with students of color about out, right, like, like yeah. how this the, did this impact the way they thought about race when they're seeing these ugly words anonymously online, and they know they're coming from the people 
that are in the cafeteria with them, that are in their dorms, that are in classrooms with them. And that is something that is unique, where typically we are socially distant from the messages that we see online. And in this case, they weren't. So that is what kind of um, allowed me to begin this study, was finding kind of a, a, a space, excuse me, a unique context where the physical and the digital were, you know, were together and there was a little bit less of a divide between those worlds and something that, that, you know, that I could, I could test and I could investigate by talking with folks. You know, I'm not sure if that answers your question about inciting incident. I think that there are lots of incidents, Mm -hmm. lots of canon events that, that led me on the path that I am. And some of these things about stories about online, I did not, you know, I did not think were driving me to become a researcher. But the the deeper I got into the work, the more I realized that these are these are questions and experiences that I had been having for years that informed the way I thought about um, race and racism and, uh, um, you know, the, the types of data that I need in order to make a decision about, like, what is this link between online racism and the real world? I'm intrigued by something you said about the theory that you had been reading and the experiences yeah. that you had that you had had what intrigued me about that was just like in most educational systems you have the theory and the practice uh-huh. and they both inform one another and it makes sense i guess to me why certain states certain politicians would want to ban theory so that you yeah. remove a leg from the tripod or you know however brings stability so that there's not that information there you're not actually informed and you're practicing out of ignorance yes uh you know it's very scary it's this it's um they're making it illegal to talk about race it's hard to understand to 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 think about a reason for this Mm -hmm. beyond just wanting to protect privilege beyond right uh, and, and i think that sometimes when i think about the opposition i try to not imagine they are bad people but imagine they are good people and and really understand okay how does the way that they think like where is it coming from for them without without making an assumption of where it comes from where is it coming from? it is hard to imagine a non-racist reason right. for some of these bands yeah. Right. Like it seems pretty intentional of look, we want to stop talking about racism so that you cannot point out where racism lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I was, I'm seeing that, right. You can't guest speak at schools in Florida and bring up critical race theory. Right. Like, right. So what is it that's so scary about critical race theory? Mm-hmm. It's just, a, it's just a framework that points out how racism lives despite being illegal. And so critical race theory began by lawyers who saw, hey, we have all these victories from the classic civil rights movement, but we still have racial inequality. Why is that? And then investigating the ways that race-neutral laws and policies could still encourage or, or you know, perpetuate um, racist outcomes, unequal racial outcomes. This ban is because there, there is, right, when I'm talking about naming racism, right? So one of the things I talk about in the book, right, it's called When the Hood Comes Off. I talk about masked racism that's hidden and the right the unmasking of racism in online spaces when it becomes more visible or we're able to name it. The reason why that is so important is because when racism is named, then now people have to come to terms with 
the reality that, oh, society is not as just as I thought it was. Oh, things are not as even. Oh, the meritocracy may be a myth. And when that happens, then, right, then we're, we're forced with the question of, okay, so would we like to change this? Right. And then now, it, right, you, you can't, it, there's less of a, right, you can't be ignorant of it. Ignorance is bliss, right? You, right? When, you, when you're no longer ignorant of the fact of how this is, this is how society works, then you're faced with a tough choice. And I think that wanting to, to stop those conversations is wanting to prevent more people, children, in the case of, of this happening in the education system, from having the choice of whether they want to be on the side of oppression because it benefits them or whether, or whether they want to fight oppression regardless of the cost that they may incur. Because yeah. I think that that's the reality is that there are many people who are privileged and who benefit from a racist system. And for folks who benefit from a racist system, it is a, you know, it is a, like once you learn this, mm-hmm. it's a tough decision you have to make. Is Are you willing to give up some of the things you have in order to make the, the, the world a little bit more just when you realize that some of the things you have are not because you worked hard, it's because of injustice. If someone hasn't wrestled with that question, that is one of the biggest existential questions that we can ask ourselves as humans. Would we be willing to take less so that others can be equal? Which means that they might get more because they have less than us. And I mean, Ah, wow. I mean, that's a powerful question that doesn't yeah. get answered in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But you know, like you're right. And we think about, uh, even like, I think one of the ways that, it, that, that it, it can be most explicit for folks when we think about taxes, hmm. like no one likes paying taxes. It's not fun to see the difference between your gross and your net when you look at a paycheck. But then when you think about, okay, Am I, would I be willing to pay an extra 5% taxes for there to be u- universal health care? Mm-hmm. And think about what would that mean as a society for us to be like to, to live in a world where everyone has access to health care. They're not easy for people to give up what they have, especially when they feel like they earned what they have. But when you realize that their you know, society is shaped in a way that makes it easier for some people to get to that bottom line than, than it is for others that I think that, 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 you know, that we are making calls for people to, um, you know, to, to be willing to give up unearned privilege and to right and to realize that this is not something that was earned by you or your ancestors is something that was taken from, from someone else. When you mentioned, you know, paying taxes for, you know, universal healthcare, I even thought of things like, why wouldn't we pay a percentage for like a universal income or even reparations? Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I think about even at that level, it's like, I wouldn't mind paying taxes for that. I mean, it's going to be better utilized than military spending, <laughs> which yeah, is yeah. insane. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think people have a trouble with, with reparations because they have trouble understanding how history impacts them now that people will say, Oh, there's no one living who was a slave. There's no one living who was a slave owner. So why are we talking about this? And people have a hard time connecting the dots between historical injustices and contemporary realities. And, you know, and, and again, the part of this is, is hidden information is that people don't understand how the government subsidized home ownership for white veterans, but not for black veterans. And what does that mean? It means wealth inequality across generations. And so part of reparations 
is about recognizing the moments in which the government subsidized the generation of wealth for white folks while repressing black folks and making it so that black folks could not generate wealth. And so, right, like like when we think about reparations, part of it is in recognition of explicit wrongs that were done that we can measure the, the effects now. Um, and I, but, but, but many people, again, when we think about race and racism, this is about individual attitudes and they're not able to connect the, you know, the, um, government policies that to, you know, are taking place now versus taking place a hundred years ago that have a, a big part in shaping what, you know, a wealth and income looks like across generations. Um, and then, you know, for things like, uh, universal income. It's again, it's, it's, you know, when people think on an individual level is that they're thinking, they're not thinking about like, if you have a good job, then it's easier for you to, to feel like, well, Hey, why do we need universal income? If you work hard, you can get a good job like me is that we tend to give ourselves the credit for where we land that are realizing that no, no, you know, your test scores. Yeah, sure. You worked hard to get into a good college, but your test scores could be predicted by your zip code growing up in your parents' education level. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not taking away from your work ethic, but we knew what, what you were going to be based on where you were born and who you were born to. And right. Like it's, it's a difficult thing for people to recognize their own privilege and to take action like that. I think, you know, universal income, I think this is going to become a bigger conversation, you know, as we see uh, right now with AI and this question of what are jobs going to look like as AI continues to improve over the next decade. And right now we're in the, right. It's a, it's a scary prospect to be in a society that is going to, you know, maybe need labor less and less, mm -hmm. but does not have a, you know, but like the infrastructure for supporting, uh, right. Like there is no universal income. What's so what happens in a society that needs less and less labor, right. but also does not have a good social safety net, mm -hmm. um, built up. And that's a, that's a, it's a scary prospect for sure. Yeah. One of the conversations around AI is, is the pretty obvious biases that it shows in an image generation and the text generation. But I can also see it as a massive perpetuation of privilege between those who have access and those who don't in the future. Because mm. yeah, and that, yeah. That, that's honestly what scares me the most is the inequality that it's going to create. And I just don't think people recognize it or see it that way. Yeah, it could definitely be, you know, uh, um, if we see AI being more privatized, right? Because right now, you know, anyone can go get a chat GPT account and play with it a little bit. But right, like it is not uh, impossible to imagine that these things can be privatized in a way that not everyone has access to these tools and that, that can create inequality. Um, absolutely. That's the case. I think, you know, I think that, that, that is something that is worrying, uh, you know, I, I, I personally am on the side right now worrying about what jobs are going to be replaced by AI oh. and what does that, what, right. What does that mean for the world when entire industries are going to be kind of taken over? So I, you know, I, like there's some folks who are working on AI that can take fast food orders mm -hmm. and right. Like, so that you're, yeah. you know, instead of ordering from a human, you order from a computer. And right. So in a situation like that, this it's a cool technology, right? Yeah. But how many people are going to be put out of work by this being something that is widespread and adopted? 
and that like right like that's a that's a hard question so on one hand you have right so when you have a tool that you're creating that is gonna make the world of you know make it easier to do something but then and by doing so they're going to be thousands hundreds of thousands of jobs lost mm-hmm. and so right this is it's a moral question of it's going to happen if it, your company doesn't do it someone else's company is going to do it but what needs to happen for us to make sure that people are okay in a world where there's less and less demand mm-hmm. for um you know the types of jobs that that ai can take over yeah for about I think seven years, I was an adjunct instructor at the community college, and I would often have students who were being retrained to do something new. And that's often like the argument when, when your job becomes obsolete, we'll just retrain into something else. And, yeah. and I've, I often saw that it was older students and it was interesting to see how they struggled with that whole notion of retraining especially going into a technical field. And then what happens when that technical path is replaced by artificial intelligence? What, where does the retraining go from there? Like, are we just going to all retrain to be plumbers and electricians <laughs> so that we can, yeah. you know, create, yeah. you know, better infrastructure? I mean, I, I don't know. It's like a resurgence of the crafts. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I don't have a, a clear idea of where society is going to go, but I know that, um, you know, I, I think I, I hope that people will begin to think more collectively than yeah. individually. And, and again, that this is a time for us to imagine what is the society that we want to live in. If AI can do all the things that, you know, so what, where does that leave us as humans and how can we still take care of each other? And right, like, what are the the things that we need to put in place now to prepare for those, you know, uh, eventual changes? As an academic and a, a research scholar, writing and speaking makes a ton of sense. When does filmmaking enter your idea? Like, I'm going to make a film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so, okay. So part of it comes from, I have been making films with my family. For a long time. Oh, cool. And so I do every year, I, we, uh, my family and I, we enter a film festival to make a short film. So <laughs> something that we have done as a hobby. And right in my back, you know, I do this with my mother, my sister, my kids. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. So the, it, it, it has been, a, yeah, thanks. It has been, a, it has been a hobby. I have an interest in writing fiction. It's something I've done for a long time. Um, and the way that I got into this film project was uh, one of my collaborators on the film, Melissa Tang. Uh, and Barry Palsman, they worked together to make a film uh, that was written by an incarcerated woman about anxieties they had upon, you know, being released. And they showed me this this VR film and asked me to help them evaluate the film. I said, absolutely. Uh, you know, I gave the help that I could give. And then I also said, would you all be interested in making another one? Because I have an idea about how to do something like this around race. So really it began from, you know, just kind of a, like someone within my network sent these folks my way. They knew that I was writing a paper about, uh, um, you know, a, a discourse around mass incarceration on social media and how it's been changing over the last decade. So they sent me, you know, they, they recommended folks to go toward, you know, my direction and we just built a relationship. We, we worked for several years on this. And so, you know, now we're almost done, uh, with the film and what it does is it, it's, uh, it is a, it's filmed in 360 degrees for VR or virtual reality. 
um, and it has multiple endings and it shows a, 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 an incident of racism that takes place. And, you know, it shows a version of the incident where no one speaks out against the racism and then a version where someone speaks out. And then it shows the incident from multiple perspectives. You get to see the experience from the perspective of the person being microaggressed, from the microaggressor, from a bystander, and understanding kind of the causes and consequences of different ways of responding to racism. Um, and so that, you know, that's what the film is. It, I'm very excited about it. And for me, it, it, it has been a melding of my personal interests in filmmaking and storytelling, and then professionally and thinking about resistance to racism. And, you know, from, you know, a lot of my work is that, that folks of color feel empowered when they re resist or respond or challenge racism online. And I want to think about what does that look like in person? where we know that the norm is to not say anything in the face of microaggressions, right? Um, and so that, you know, so the, the, the film is, is definitely directly connected to um, ideas that are in the book. Um, and it's, you know, I was also able to collaborate with some experienced filmmakers to uh, make it a little bit more professional than the short films I make with my kids, uh, which, you know, we shoot on a cell phone and edit an iMovie and, you know, we have a lot of fun, but then, we're not, uh, um, we're un under no illusions of, of uh, you know, producing something that is a Scorsese. It's more of us, you know, we're having fun as a family. So anyway, so this is something that connects my personal interests with my professional expertise and then collaborating with people who have a long history of doing socially responsible uh, filmmaking. And so it's a project I'm, I'm really, really excited about. Yeah, I love that. What a powerful way of using film too, beyond just a passive experience where you sit and you take it all in and hope uh -huh. that they think about it on the other end. Having that multiple ending point really helps to create a, a different response. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And that's, uh, we'll be evaluating it in the coming year it is, is seeing, you know, I, I, um, it is art. Um, but it also is an intervention and the, and, and we're trying to understand how it can be used to generate conversations, to change what people think about race, and then also, you know, testing whether it has impacts on, um, you know, things like heart rate or stress or understanding kind of the physical, uh, responses that we often have to racism. When you're directing that film. Yeah. What were some of the conversations that you had with the actors who were portraying the microaggressions and the, the not standing up or not, or, or even being racist? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and, you know, cause we did, we did have in-depth conversations. I remember, so one of the leads, uh, Emma Young, who plays the microaggressor, she asked me, he said, is my character racist? What were her motivations in this scene? And right, like, and, and that just, that led to a long conversation about, um, and, you know, and I, I don't want to give things away here, but how much does, right, motivation matter in a situation where the harm is done? If someone, does, right, it, it, right, and so, so it matters from a character point of view as you embody the character and are um, trying to figure out what is going on in my head in this scene. But then, right, when I think about the harm that is being done, like even if this was not intentional, harm is being done. And so does that, does it make it better? 
that you, right? Like, is it better, right? Does it make it better that you didn't come into this saying, oh, I'm going to hurt someone today if you hurt someone today? And right, so it's a, it's a, right? And, 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 um, and when I say better, maybe not morally, but in terms of the effects, does it matter to the person who's being harmed what your motivations were? We can never know someone's motivation. Someone can say, oh, I didn't mean to do it, but it, it was done. Right. And the red light, so, so, so it, it just became a broader conversation about what is racism? How much do motivations matter? And if we never know someone's true motivations, how can we evaluate the effects of racism, assuming that we will never know someone's true intention? Yeah. And so, yes, I think that they right, that, that these questions of, of character development led to bigger conversations about, you know, about race and racism. Yeah. It just speaks to the power of art to, I guess, dismantle certain barriers or filters or things that we put up so that we mm-hmm. don't have to think about it and allows us to enter into a story, be able to reconcile how we might experience that i just i just think it's great that you're doing that i I think it's awesome thank you thank you no i'm I'm excited to do it i'm excited for it to hopefully be in the world soon um and i and i I, you know i agree that i think that there's a tremendous power and art and and you know i feel incredibly fortunate to be in a place where i'm able to be exploring how art and storytelling can um can be used in the in the fight against uh, the struggle against racism well rob as we wrap up our time together i mean you've shared so much today but what wisdom would you like to leave with the audience the thing i would say is just to resist is that when we see racism you know speak out against racism i think that 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 our society i think that the norms are it, it is rude to challenge people who do racist things. People can be incredibly offended at being called a racist. But I think that the more racism we ignore and allow to, uh, um, you know, things that, that things to occur without being challenged, the more normal they're going to be seen, the more they're going to be accepted. And the more that we challenge them, the more people will come to understand what racism looks like in a society where it is typically hidden. And so I would just encourage people to resist and in whatever ways they can in order to, um, you know, change the, change the, the, the norms and expectations that we have about, uh, what behaviors are appropriate. Um, when we know that, that certain things are doing harm. Well, final question for you. I love that you call yourself an avid reader, but also a rereader of fantasy fiction. What was the last fantasy book you reread that opened your mind to something new and unexpected? Well, so the last book that I reread was Lord of the Rings. I think typically like what my rereading is often Lord of the Rings, Cimmerillion. Um, um, I think that I have been, I just, like I finished recently for the first time, the Wheel of Time series. Hmm. Um, and that, right. And, and so I think that was something that, that was very cool for me to, and I, you know, at the end of it, I think which I was actually turned on to it from the Amazon uh, TV series. Okay. I'm excited about that second season to come out too. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think that every time I go back and read Tolkien, I am just astounded by his use of language in describing the world, right? I think that right, I would love to see someone pull all of his descriptions of sunsets out of the book and, 
and like publish that as an essay, right? That they, the, it's, it's just incredible. In my free time recently, I have been reading and rereading fantasy fiction. Um, and, and I, I kind of separate that reading time from my, uh, you know, more kind of nonfiction or academic reading time. Well, Rob, thank you so much for the work that you do, for sharing about it today. I'm grateful for just the way that you show up in this world and that you're willing to come on the show and share everything. I'm just, thank you. Hey, thank you, Chris. I appreciate you having me. This is a great conversation and thanks so much for, you know, for taking the time to read the book and then for, you know, for talking with me about it too. Earlier in this conversation, I mentioned the definition of woke that I had heard in a podcast. And that actually came from a podcast called From One Caregiver to Another. And it was in the episode with Altagracia Montilla. And I went and listened to that episode again just to make sure that I credit that definition correctly. And so here is what Altagracia says is her definition of woke. Quote, If I were to break it down, I think there are three main categories that is a part of this. I think one, it is to be awake or woke, to be conscious of the systems of inequity. The second thing is to have the ability to dream of systems outside of the unequal and oppressive systems. And the third is the ability to live that dream out. What an amazing definition full of hope, imagination, and promise of something amazing, something beyond what we see today. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Rob. I hope you'll go listen to that conversation with Altagracia on From One Caregiver to Another. The link is in the show notes. And I hope that you'll be challenged with some of the things that you've heard in today's conversation. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.